Thank you, Gary. Uh, if you uh, want to find a Bible this morning and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to be there in, in just a moment. And again, if you're new this morning, uh, we are in a study on David, and so we're talking about David's life. Last week, we kind of talked about Saul and the whole dynamic of God rejecting him as king, and we're moving forward today. We'll get there in just a moment. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, David, A Man of Passion and Destiny, shares about the year 1809. He writes, the year 1809 was a very good year. Of course, those who were alive that year didn't know it. In that year, people were focused on Napoleon while marching across Austria. Everyone was wondering if he was going to take over the world. But in that same year, thousands of babies were born in America and in Britain. No one cared about the babies. But listen to this list. Again, 1809. William Gladstone was born in England along with Alfred Tennyson. Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A few miles away, Edgar Allan Poe was born in Boston. And in a little log cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky, an illiterate laborer and his wife named their newborn son Abraham Lincoln. Now, how many of you can name one battle fought in Austria that year? But most of us have been impacted by these men born in 1809. In our text today, we find a similar situation. Everyone seems to be focused on this guy named Saul, and God is working and moving on the outskirts of town in a sheep field. And again, your Bible's open to 1 Samuel chapter 15. As you might remember from last week, we learned that Saul, again, Israel's first king, had been rejected by God. Why was he rejected? He was rejected because he did not obey God. God had commanded a particular action, and Saul... Uh, did not do that, but it was more than just that. It was on more than one occasion Saul turned his back on God. And it all finally comes to a head in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul openly disobeys God, fails to carry out what God told him to do. Samuel confronts Saul and tells him that God rejected him. And we read in verse 35 of 1 Samuel chapter 15, Until the day Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. It's a sad day. We have Samuel mourning. And we have God grieving. That's a fascinating verse, isn't it? God grieving, God regretting. How does God regret? That same word is used in Genesis chapter 6. In the story of Noah, we read, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. The Hebrew word here for regret can also mean sorrow. I think that's the best way to translate this. God knows all things. God has a sovereign plan. And you might say, well, how can God regret something, right? Did he make a poor decision? Certainly God did not make a poor decision. He is not flippant. He doesn't change his mind. In fact, we read back in verse 29 of 1 Samuel chapter 15, for he is not human, a human being that he should change his mind. So I think the best way to understand this is that God is sorrowful. God is sad. The, the way things are going are not in line with how God would want them to be. We're at a low point in Israel's history, but God is not finished. He has a plan. We're going to see what happens next. Flip with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 16 here. And we notice that Samuel is stuck in the fact that things didn't work out as he had hoped. Have you ever been in that position? You're in a place where you're disappointed. Maybe that job didn't work out as you had hoped. You're in a place where you're thinking, I don't know if I can pull out of this depression. This is what's going on with Samuel here. He's in a bad place. 
people of God had selected Saul as king. Saul is still acting as king. Samuel knows that Saul is rejected. He looks around and he understands that there are many who are willing and wanting to attack Israel. And he's wondering what's going to happen. We've got this king that's rejected by God. And we need a leader. How is all this going to work out? And so Samuel is depressed. And he's, on the, he's in the pits. He's down. And God comes to him in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? In other words, Samuel, are you just going to sit there? Are you just going to focus on the past? Are you going to focus on the failure? And look at what happens next. God prompts Samuel to action, verse 1. Fill your horn with oil. Now, that's how you get ready to anoint a king here. And be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Samuel, get up. Get dressed. Get the horn. Fill it with oil. I've chosen the next king. God is inviting Samuel to participate. But God doesn't give Samuel all the details. He only gives him the first step. Now you think that Samuel might get excited a bit thinking that God is on the move, right? That God is acting. That you would think that he would be tired of sitting around and mourning and grieving and focusing on the failure. But look at how Samuel reacts in verse 2. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Samuel's not at all excited. He's not at all eager to do what God is asking him to do. In fact, he's fearful. He's uncertain. He's focusing on the potential hazards of the mission. How many times are we like Samuel? God is calling us and God is saying, this is what I want you to do. And we're thinking, God, I don't want to do that, right? I might be misunderstood. People might reject me. My message may not be popular. Now remember, Saul is still the king. And even though he's been rejected by God, he's sitting on the throne. And you can't go around anointing other kings if you have a king sitting on the throne because that king might get mad at you and might kill you. And Samuel is thinking about that. He's wondering, well, I live through this, right? Now, before we give Samuel a hard time here, we have to also... Remember that Samuel's attitude is much like many heroes of the faith. Do you remember what Moses said when God called him to lead the people out of Egypt? He said, I think you got the wrong guy, God. I'm not the one, right? I can't do that. I I love how God simply continues to give Samuel instruction here. Again, he doesn't respond to Samuel's comment. He doesn't even assure Samuel that it's all going to be okay. He simply offers him instruction, and he continues to invite him to join him. Look at verse 2. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. All right, here's what you do. Invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I'll point out which one is going to be king. I think it's appropriate to live in this tension for a moment here. You know, this is how it is for most of us when God calls us. He doesn't always give us all the details. He doesn't tell us how it's all going to work out. Sometimes God just says, I want you to take the first step. And then I'll show you the next step. And then the next step. And then the next step. He leads us one one step at a time. From a human perspective, Samuel has every reason to be afraid. We know that Saul is willing to kill, right? To maintain power. We also know, we'll we'll, we'll read later on, that Saul is 
uh, person with a bad temper. He flies off the handle at times, and Samuel must know this, and he must know that his life is on the line. You know, in our world today, it's easy to be distracted by all the things going on around us. It's easy to look at our world and wonder, is God's word still applicable for us today? I mean, if we obey God, people might look down on us. If we obey God, my business might suffer. If we obey God, people might misunderstand me. And Samuel has a choice to make. The next sentence is just a few words here, but the words are profound. Look at verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. He made the right choice, didn't he? He chose to follow God even when his circumstances involved great risk. He made the journey to Bethlehem. And when he arrives in Bethlehem, people are living in fear. Maybe they've heard rumors about Samuel's encounter with Saul. They know that Samuel's a prophet of God. If you look back at earlier chapters, we know that Samuel is a mighty man. And so they see him coming and they wonder, what is he up to? What's going to happen? Look at verse 4. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel responds, verse 5, Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Samuel tells them, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. He invites them to join him. Now, when someone sacrificed a lamb or some sort of animal in this day and time, it would usually involve some sort of liturgical washing. And so we're not exactly sure what that process would have looked like, but it probably include, included preparation, some sort of ritual, some sort of prayer. And so Jesse and his sons go through the process with Samuel. And, and let's just live in this tension for a moment. They're preparing themselves to hear God. Samuel does not know what God is going to say. Jesse does not know what God is going to say. Jesse's sons do not know what God is going to say. So they listen. They wait. We get some insight to what's going on in Samuel's mind here in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now remember, Samuel knew that he was going to anoint one as king, but he didn't know which one. And when he sees Eliab, he thinks, that's the one. Again, he doesn't say it out loud, but that's what he's thinking. Eliab has the look of a king. No doubt he's tall, he's impressive, he's a man of battle. We find him fighting with Saul and the troops in the next chapter. But Samuel did not know Eliab's character. If we fast forward to the 17th chapter, we see Eliab critical and negative, looking down on his younger brother. And we are reminded here that outward appearances are not always what they seem. Samuel thought that this was God's man, but it was not. God tells him in verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We keep reading in verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Now, Abinadab was Jesse's second oldest son. Probably looked a lot like his brother. Same deal here, not the one. We're not told why. We're simply told he's not the one. Then in verse 9, Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Not him either. 
The author does not give us the details about each brother, but we have this picture of each son coming before Samuel. And each time, no, not the one. Verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, I I would bet when the last one passed by, Samuel's wondering, what is going on here, right? Did I have the wrong address? Did I show up in the wrong place? God, what are you doing here? And so Samuel turns to verse, in verse 11 and he asks Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? As we're reading the story, we're reminded that God is looking not at outward appearance, but at the heart. Jesse was sure that one of the top seven would be the one, right? Verse 11, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep, Samuel said. Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. I love, I love the tension there in the verse, don't you? I, yeah, I got another son, but he's not much of a king. He's more of a shepherd kind of guy, and he's out in the field. Samuel says, go get him. And I love the phrase, we will not sit down until he arrives. Have you ever been in a sporting event where you stand up the whole time, right? It's really tense. You know, I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan, so we have lots of games like that, right? We're on our feet the whole time. You just don't sit down, right? That's what's going on here. You can feel the tension in the text. And as David is brought in from the field, again, we are learning that God's choice is not always our choice. We're learning that God sees things differently than we see things. And again, I'm sure Samuel is a bit on edge here. He's wondering what God is doing. Had God really called him to this place? But it was coming down to the end of it. Time was running out. And all that seemed left was this young shepherd boy. Verse 11. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And then in verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features now you might be going I thought it didn't matter what he looked like right why is he telling us what he looked like (laughs) it's interesting the fine appearance here in Hebrew could also mean beautiful eyes now think about that for a moment the Bible often talks of eyes as the window to the soul Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 22 the eye is the lamp of the body if your eyes are healthy your whole body will be full of light and and so what I think is going on here is that when David goes into the room Samuel looks into his eyes and he can tell that he has the right kind of heart again not about outward appearance but about what's going on in the heart as soon as David walks in the room verse 12 then the Lord said rise and anoint him this is the one. Samuel does exactly what God tells him to do. Verse 13, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. And we're going to stop the story there today. It's a great story, so I encourage you to come back week after week as we work our way through it. But as we consider this story, I think there are several ways that this story should challenge us as Jesus followers in 2023. First of all, I think most of us can relate to Samuel's experience. God sometimes calls us to places that are uncomfortable, that are risky. On the one hand, Samuel was upset that things had not worked out as he had hoped. 
But now God is calling him to go to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. This path is fraught with risk. Saul might have him killed. But God urges him to go and to anoint a new king. You know, sometimes God calls us to do what we don't want to do. Are we willing to trust him when he does? Are we confident that God will provide for us? You know, Christians in the first century were often called into places and among people who did not want to hear their message. But they went, boldly proclaiming Jesus as Lord in a culture that said Caesar is Lord. Are we willing to do the same? Do we believe what Paul wrote to the church at Rome, what we read earlier in Romans chapter 8, verse 31? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Samuel believed this in the end. And so he went with horn and oil in hand, ready to anoint a king. Secondly, this story reminds us that God's ways are not always our ways. If we're picking out a new king, we would have chosen the strongest, the tallest, the best warrior to lead the people, wouldn't we? But God knows what is best. God knows us. He loves us. He designed us. And we will flourish as we follow him and follow his instructions. The question to consider this morning is, are we looking to God for direction, for answers, for guidance in everything that we do? Or are we intent on following our own way or the way that the world tells us to go? I love the 1991 song by Rich Mullins entitled, Maker of Noses. The lyrics go like this. They said, boy, just follow your heart. But my heart just led me into my chest. They said, follow your nose. But the direction it changed every time I went and turned my head. They said, boy, just follow your dreams. But my dreams were only misty notions. But the father of hearts and the maker of noses, and the giver of dreams. He's the one I've chosen, and I will follow him. Might we be a people who are following the maker of noses? Might we heed his plan even when it doesn't make sense by the standards of our world? And might we have the courage to follow God in a world that is increasingly antagonistic against the ways of God? As we go deeper into the David story, we're going to see how God works and moves in ways that require his followers to trust him. Even when the circumstances seem impossible. Might we be like Samuel with courage to risk it all and the willingness to listen to God. Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful for this story. We are grateful for the prophet Samuel who had the courage to step into a place of risk. Why? Because you called him there. God, may we follow you and trust you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.